This is the Dividend Health Checkup. Hi, I'm DGI Guy, and this is the Dividend Health Checkup. Along with Dr. Dividend, we are bringing you a weekly show that's dedicated to learning as much as we possibly can from investors who are primarily focused in the dividend investing space. This week's article of the week comes to us from Seeking Alpha author Passive Income Pursuits. He wrote an interesting piece titled, After the Run-Up, Johnson & Johnson is Still a Buy. Now, I'm a shareholder of Johnson & Johnson, and I think its price is a little bit into the nosebleed section right now. I'd put a fair value on it close to $100, and it's probably around $119, $120 right now. So this article caught my eye, and I always try and keep an eye out for a view that's different different than mine, just to see if I've missed something. So I've recently written articles that talk about my opinion of the fair value of Johnson & Johnson. If you haven't seen those, check those out if you're interested. But back to the article, the author writes of the historic yield and dividend growth rates, return projections. He puts in a little blurb about how valuations impact returns and then also includes the rate of return at various levels of PE based on earnings per share and dividend estimates. So the outcome is an interesting scenario that shows an IRR that's positive across all various P ratios from 15 to 25, I think it was. And the only thing that I would caution folks is that this is kind of a rosy view of this scenario we see quite often, which is the linear extrapolation of growth that goes out 10 years. So this is just a generic input that says we're going to grow earnings per share 10% every year for the next 10 years very linearly. And we all know that that's not possible. Well, not necessarily not possible. It's not probable. And we also know that people have problems figuring out what next year's earnings are going to look like, let alone what happens 10 years from now. So while the math works out, it does so through some of the biases that we highlighted a few weeks back in an article of the week when we were looking at investor biases. So either way, the article is an interesting read. I put my asterisks of caution on it when you look at that rosy view. I'm still a traditionalist. I ended the article thinking my fair value is relatively the same as when I started reading it. But it's a quick read, an interesting perspective, and I just wanted to highlight it for this article of the week. Okay, let's move on now to Dr. Dividend's interview with Nicholas Ward. So today I'm welcoming to the Dividend Health Checkup podcast, Nicholas Ward. Nicholas is a frequent writer on Seeking Alpha and frankly, one of the younger guns uh, in the dividend growth space. So I am super excited to have him here and banter with him to see how much different me being an old timer close to 40 versus the young Nick Ward is going to uh, change in terms of the investing philosophy. Nicholas, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right, Howard. How are you? I'm doing great. So, you know, as, a, as I'm reading your profile, you know, dividend investing seems to make a lot of sense with you because you live on a farm. Yeah, no, I get to. Um... I didn't live on a farm when I first started here, um, but yeah, I kind of I've worked in agriculture 
you know, I studied English and, and fine arts at the University of Virginia and then ended up managing a vineyard somehow. Um, but I understand the the kind of similarities between planting crops and waiting for them to produce and then, you know, reinvesting those seeds back into the land. And it's a pretty similar situation to a dividend growth uh, portfolio. Well, here, let's just give a plug to your vineyard right from the start. What is the name of the wine you guys create? It's, uh, this, I guess the owner would appreciate this. It's Meriwether Springs Vineyard, just outside of Charlottesville, Virginia. I think we're the closest vineyard to like the university and all of that. Um, we're fairly new, though. We actually haven't produced wine because it takes grapes three to four years to produce. So this upcoming year should be our first uh, you know, major harvest. So no pre-ordering yet, huh? Nothing, no, no discounts for the Seeking Alpha community. I mean, we'll see how it goes. Charlottesville is known for its wine scene, so we're going to have to win an award or something to to earn pre-orders. <laughs> okay, well, make sure to send me the link so I can add that in the show notes for everyone else in the community to peruse. So, now you being a young gun, your your personal background is not going to be all that extensive compared to some of the. Uh, more seasoned guests that we've had on the show, but kind of give us a little bit of background on how you got to where you are. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny. Like I said, I studied English, you know, for years I was, uh, you know, I was sitting in Mr. Jefferson's gardens, just writing poems and whatnot. Wasn't even worried about the stock market or finance or any of that as a bunch of my friends were, you know, beating their heads against the wall in the comm school at UVA, which is, much more difficult than what I did. And then, uh, you know, I, I kind of thought they were silly. And then after graduation, I don't even really know how it happened. I guess I just started making money and understood that I needed to be responsible with it. So I, you know, I came across Seeking Alpha and several other sort of investment financial media platforms and quickly fell in love with uh, portfolio management and ever since have, you know, dedicated probably, you know, just thousands of hours, I guess, into uh, researching and reading and whatnot. So now I've gotten to the point where I feel pretty good about managing our family's finances here. And um, I'm actually just in the process currently of withdrawing all of the funds. I've been kind of doing it slowly over time. Um, you know, all of the funds that we had amassed from from our financial advisor and just, you know, I'll be 100% self-directed here and, you know, once all this paperwork goes through. I am truly in the enviable position of you being, I'm going to guess, about 14, 15 years younger than I am to catch this idea of dividend investing so young. Um, Because when I was going through school and even during dental schools, right during the dot-com boom, and so there were uh, classmates of mine that were literally skipping class, day trading, uh, having stocks go up a couple hundred percent in a week and the question of why even be in dental school. Now, obviously 15 years has gone by and there's been two good reasons, uh, a couple years apart on why people are still dentists. But, you know, what factors brought you to that dividend investing side versus saying, Hey, I'm young. I can throw this in. I can throw this at companies that are going somewhere, you know, the Googles, the Apples, the Amazon, even several years back and say, let it ride. Yeah, I guess I'm just, um, I, you know, I kind of talk about this when I write sometimes, but, you know, as much as I love winning, you know, I grew up 
as an athlete, I ran track at the University of Virginia. I've always been a good athlete, but I, I think I hate losing more than I love winning. Um, I hate that feeling I get when I lose something, uh, money included. So I've kind of just realized, you know, I had a long way to go and, and I'm, I'm sort of in a position right now financially where, you know, I'm blessed to, to, to be able to say this, but you know, as long as I don't do anything terribly stupid, uh, my family, you know, my wife and I, and our, hopefully our kids here in a few years should be fairly okay, uh, with money, uh, situation. So, you know, as much as I'd love to kind of chase the the Netflixes and and you know the Facebooks of the world, sometimes when I see their huge returns, you know the just the valuations don't make sense to me from a conservative standpoint. And you know, so I think just slowly building it and companies with uh, reliable cash flows and reliable earnings growth, and you know, just blue chip positions in their industries and or sectors uh, just makes a lot of sense for me you know I just it kind of limits my downside risk you know within the equity space got it as you look at your portfolio right now how many positions do you hold and do you break it down by industry or are you benchmarking it towards something you're just looking value for value yeah I don't I don't benchmark I know a lot of people do I mean I do um, there's certain industries that I've that I'm avoiding for, for, for different reasons, whether it be moral, whether it would be just, I've learned my lesson in the past and realized that I'm just not good at holding those sorts of companies. Uh, you know, for instance, I'm, and, and I'm such a hypocrite because as I say this, I'm watching Nike's ticker and then as it falls post earnings and considering adding, uh, some shares, but you know, I'm not going to, um, really allocate a lot of money towards like the fashion industry or some of the, Things like that, Tiffany's and Ralph Lauren. I've been burned on those before. Um, I'm just not good at, you know, I can't predict their performance. You know, I'm not really my, I've reduced my energy exposure quite a bit. Um, luckily, when oil was at like 60 or 70, not when it was 40. So, you know, I didn't call the bottom there, but I just, I got out and made a little money on those things and didn't lose any. But no, I don't. I don't think about it that way. I just I look for value uh, when I, when I see it. I try to make sure I understand the the, the space that those companies exist in. Um, yeah, I pay attention to yield, but I don't really have specific benchmarks. I know a lot of people will say, you know, it's got to yield three percent, or it can't yield more than you know six percent, or you know, I'm pretty flexible with my rules. I just really look for quality and value. Okay. So we'll get to those rules in just a second, but what is your specific goal with your portfolio? I would, I, it's, it's kind of hard to, um, you know, manage. I, I would love just double, like a 10%, double, double digit returns every year, but I don't really necessarily actively pursue that. Uh, you know, I just buy good companies and, you know, it's kind of happened so far. Last year I was up like 8% when the market was flat and the year before I was, I think it was up 15%. The market was up 14. Um, so, you know, I've just found, I guess, if you just buy, the, you know, the best companies in their given industries or sectors that you're going to get their performance. Uh, you know, I guess at the most basic level, I would say, I just, I don't want to lose the money that I have, but, you know, I, I don't want to just put it into bonds um, or even a CD. I want to get return there. Um, but I, you know, I want to do it as conservatively as I, as I can. Okay. And so 
when you are looking for these companies of quality, what are those key metrics that you focus on when you're researching a stock? I guess the, uh, the specific stock metrics I look at, you know, I look at reliable earnings growth and um, and cash flows, and I want to see you know a fairly decent history of that. I look at debt levels. I don't want to see a lot of that. And then if it if a company does have debt, I, you know, this is one of the the most unfun processes I'll do. But you know, I look back and I try to understand why they raised that debt and whether or not I agreed with management in those situations. Um, obviously look at the dividend and if it's growing and, and how well it's covered, you know, I don't, I don't like owning, you know, I loved, uh, owning companies that, you know, their payout ratios are less than 50%. Um, I mean, you know, I just, even if they go through a tough patch, the dividend will, should be secure. And, uh, the main thing I do is I, I really kind of look at more of a macro perspective and just try to imagine, you know, how defensible those companies are, what it would take for them to lose their, kind of blue chip market positions and uh, you know pricing power is really important to me as an investor I want to invest in companies that can will continue to be able to demand higher prices because of their strong positions kind of regardless of what the broader economic situation looks like do you immediately cut and run then for a stock that doesn't grow their dividend or you look at the macro factors and say you can understand and willing to hold out I, I, mean, I, don't, I don't have a hard and fast rule on that. Um, for instance, uh, when Verreet, when ARCP switched into Verreet and cut their dividend and all that, I still hold my shares because I was down 45%. It was, you know, I didn't see the point in, you know, I just felt like the bottom had to be near and just cutting now would just be locking in losses. But in other situations, uh, on a frozen dividend, I recently sold my John Deere. I think you know they're I think five quarters in a row without a raise right now, and same thing with Chevron. Um, you know, just I feel like when management doesn't raise when they're expected to, that probably points to some sort of uh, issues, or at least they're acknowledging hard times within their space. Um, so it's I kind of a lot of it that I do is kind of a gut feeling or, or just by feel. I know that's probably not the safest way to do it, but I also think that it's so important to be flexible and, and to understand your rules, but understand exceptions as well. And that way you don't kind of back yourself in the corners unnecessarily. Okay. Getting to a little bit of specific, are there certain stocks right now that do look interesting by your metrics? Yeah. I mean, I've, um, I, I, the biotech space is really interesting to me right now. I think, um, you know, long-term I, I, I think the growth is there. I know there's political issues, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with, with, with the politics. It's just speculation about drug pricing and whatnot. But, um, you know, with, with the dividend payers, you know, AbbVie is a company that I've been watching. You know, it's yielding 4%. They're expecting massive revenue growth. Um, you know, they, they have some patent cliff issues coming up. But, you know, management seems optimistic. And I guess, you know, to a certain extent, I need to I just take them at their word. Um, Amgen, just a lot of Gilead, a lot of those companies, you know, they've been beaten down because of just like huge kind of macro issues in the space. And I'm sure it's valid in some situations like you see with Valiant, but I don't know if it's, uh, you know, really if, if anything's going to happen with this drug pricing. And I think investors five years from now may be saying, you know, I wish I would have bought some of these biotechs right now when they were so beaten down. Yeah. I mean, just uh, as we're recording this, Gilead 
looks like it lost a couple of suits or at least against Merck. Uh, and then there's a subsequent company that's kind of merged, not merged with Merck, but has an alliance that looks to make a pretty big payday from, from that verdict. So I hear you. Um, that I agree that it does seem to be the most interesting space right now. I wish Amgen would come down a little bit more and then I would start nibbling on it. Yeah, I, I see the fair value at, at the current time of Amgen around 160. I don't know if that's in your ballpark or not, but I, you know, selfishly, I'm like, just as a buffer from that, I'd love to get in the low 140s. Yeah, yeah, no, I think I think you're right. I mean, um, I'm looking at it now, and I, I am seeing Gilead down, you know, a little over three percent. But I, what I've done, because this space, I do my best to kind of understand the science of what's going on here and which drugs have strength and which drugs are defensible and are at risk of being kind of losing their market share and whatnot. But I, you know, I do own, you know, five or six different companies in this space, kind of just to you know, if one wins and the other one loses, et cetera, I'm not really getting hurt myself. These companies are, but you know, one of the stocks I own will go up while the other one goes down. Um, this is an area where I definitely think owning a basket of kind of the top notch dividend payers makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. Being on Seeking Alpha, uh, you're well aware of David Fish's uh, CCC list in terms of that's usually a good starting place for most people. Past that, what are some of your favorite resources or websites to research stocks? Yeah, I mean, I'm so thankful for what David does. He's definitely saved me, you know, countless hours just just looking at his spreadsheets and getting that information. Um, I really like Fast Graphs. Um, Chuck Carneyball, another uh, writer at Seeking Alpha, put that together, and I'm a subscriber for him. Pay him money every month, and I, you know, it's well worth it for his service over there. It's kind of such such a quick and easy way of um just establishing a value of a stock it gives you all the kind of the basic valuation metrics and it puts it in the graph nicely i mean, usually i usually include those in my articles on seeking alpha if anybody isn't familiar with fast graphs um and then i i i love um all my different brokerages i'm, I'm able to use morningstar and smp capital iq and uh, a few other kind of of the investment analyst services and uh, Morningstar is probably my favorite. They give you towards the bottom of their detailed sheet. They'll, they give you five years worth of financials kind of sh- shown all in one area. So you get to kind of look back and, and, and track past performance and track, you know, how different, you know, debt levels and earnings and stuff like all the things I pay attention to, you see how they're rising and falling over a five year span. You know, you, you mentioned brokerage firms, which firms do you use and what specifically do you enjoy about them? Or if there's only one, what it, what's the good or bad that you found with it? Yeah, no, I use several. Um, and it makes tax season more difficult than it needs to be. I understand that. But I've just, it's as I've moved money from an advisor into, onto myself uh, for different reasons, I've put it in different places. I started um, with Scott Trade, which I chose them because they have a local office here in uh, Charlottesville, and I'm able to go speak to you know somebody when I have an issue. And when I was starting out, that was a big concern for me, um, you know, not having to call somebody or and you know just I can go in there explain a trade idea or even you know say I don't trade options, but I was I've always been kind of interested. And you go in there and they'll kind of talk you through a trade if you know and stuff like that. So that's that's nice to have their help. 
there and they do something called a flexible reinvestment program. So you can kind of pull all your dividends into this um, kind of side pool on within your, your account there. And then every month or every six months or once a year or every quarter, whenever you want to do it, you can reinvest that money and not pay a commission. So that, you know, that's nice when you have a few hundred bucks worth of dividends in a month or something like that. And then you don't want to pay seven bucks to, to reinvest that it's free. And I, I use Merrill edge. I'm a bank of America customer. So I get some kind of symbiotic benefits with them with our credit cards and things like that and also i was able i think i don't know if this is running anymore i may be grandfathered into this but i actually get 30 free trades a month with them um so that's really nice you know i essentially trade for free over there i never make more than 30 in a month i'm never any anywhere close to that and i think i'm about to open up an account with e-trade which i've never used before um but they just kind of made it easiest to, to, to transfer money to them. I'm in the process of sort of working with some weird sort of inherited accounts and the paperwork is a hassle and E-Trade has done the best job with me personally of, of kind of making, minimizing that hassle. Oh, come on. You just like the baby commercials. I do enjoy the baby commercials. I don't even, are they still making those anymore? Uh, every once in a while I'll see them, uh, somewhere on television. Don't ask me where or what, what show it's associated with, but yeah, it's uh, every once in a while I do see it to, um, but to go back to the other ones, Merrill Lynch still does that. Uh, if you have a certain threshold of investments with them in all accumulated together, uh, they do the 30 free trades. And if you get to another higher tier, I think it's like a hundred free trades a month, which I think for, most who focus on the dividend world like we do, um, that's just an insane number. So, but yes, they are still running that program there. Okay. And, uh, and with Scott trade, I, I know at one point that they, they grandfathered the flexible reinvestment thing. Did they reopen that or you have no idea? Oh, I don't, I didn't even know that they had done that. I'm in it and I use it every month. Uh, actually yesterday I bought, you know, a couple of shares with it. Um, my monthly date is, is always in, you know, right around like the 22nd or 23rd, it seems like, but, um, no, I don't know. I mean, I'm in it and it works for me. I don't know if, if other people can or cannot join that or not. As you look at your portfolio now, if you could do it all over again, is there anything that you would do differently? Oh yeah. I mean, there's obviously I've made mistakes. Everybody's I've made mistakes. I've been blessed to I've actually had market outperformance for the last two years. And I think from, uh, like you said, I'm young, I'm 26 years old right now. And I, you know, I don't have a financial education. I've kind of just learned this through trial and error and through, you know, quite a bit of time watching CNBC and just reading seeking alpha articles. Um, so I haven't made any huge mistakes. Um, and there's definitely individual companies that I would, you know, probably not invest in. Um, I've learned that I'm just, I'm not good at owning cyclical companies. Um, I own a few, uh, 3M comes to mind right now. I think I've kind of gotten rid of a lot of those. I just, it's hard. I don't like seeing earnings, uh, earning growth fall. And I know that's kind of the nature of the beast with those guys. And you just have to believe that the up cycle will happen. And when it does, you know, the uh, balance sheet will improve, but I like seeing much more steady, uh, kind of predictable performance. So 
I've lost some money just selling industrials, you know, at losses just because I didn't like holding them. I didn't like the feeling I got. And I decided to put that money into a more uh, kind of predictable space. So I guess, you know, I mentioned fashion earlier and just other kind of consumer stocks that are not staples. I just would avoid those spaces and just stick to, you know, where I feel most comfortable. Of all the companies that you invest in, are there any that do not pay a dividend? Yeah, there's a few. Um, let me, I'll pull that up right now on my main portfolio. Berkshire Hathaway obviously doesn't pay a dividend to uh, the chagrin of many. Um, I own some Paragon Offshore right now, which was spun off from Noble Energy when I used to own that, and that doesn't pay a dividend. That's like a 20 cent OTC stock that I'm glad, you know, I didn't buy that because that's performed terribly. Uh, but every, most everything else does, um, you know, down from I have Visa and MasterCard here paying less than, you know, less than a percent. So my highest yielders are my REITs, uh, Vera REITs, Omega Healthcare, um, CCP, which was spun off from, uh, what's that, Capital Care Properties, Care Capital Properties, which was spun off from uh, Ventas. So yeah, I have a wide range and I do have a few and I've actually... I've, uh, this year I've, you know, just kind of branched off away from DJI a teeny bit in my personal Roth IRA where it's not a lot of money in there anyway. And I've been kind of swing trading, uh, with the volatility, some of these kind of biotech names and technology names. So I, I think I own, you know, I own Google right now and I own Celgene currently in, uh, in that account. So neither one of those pay dividends. Okay. Now, being being younger, you know, some of the articles on Seeking Alpha say, hey, you're young, why pay dividend or why pay taxes on dividends? If you want to do a dividend stock, go for something that has a low yield and go for the total return, such as you mentioned uh, Visa. I don't know if you mentioned MasterCard as well in your portfolio. Um I don't know what other names are low yielders. We'll just say under 2%. But be, being at the age that you are, is it growth over over dividends and income or what's your mindset? Yeah, I mean, I let's see. Yeah, I, I own MasterCard, Kroger, Disney, Starbucks, Whole Foods, um, McCormick, and Apple are my, what's that, like seven or eight uh, companies that yield less than 2% right now. Apple's kind of right on that threshold, depending on how it performs. But yeah, you know, I, I do. I like you know I like owning some of these higher yielders, so that every month you know my I get more dividends. I feel good when I you know buy shares in the reinvestment programs. I, I kind of consider those as being free shares. I didn't have to earn that money; it just was given to me through the portfolio. I, I know it's not kind of reality, but it feels nice when you consider think of it that way with house money. But no, I definitely uh, prioritize growth. I pay a lot of attention to kind of chowder numbers. Um, give a shout out to chowder on Seeking Alpha. You know, I like, I don't have a rule. I, I love seeing that number above 12. Uh, a chowder number, for those that don't know, is the five-year dividend growth rate added to the current yield. Uh, for instance, if a company's yielding 4% and it's got a five-year growth rate of 6%, the chowder number would be 10 Um so to get a higher number, you typically have to rely more on dividend growth than dividend yield. But I have a pretty large mix of yields and growth. 
But I, I have recently, I got sold out of utilities recently because they're just there was no growth. The chowder numbers were so low. And over the long term, I think you're right. For me anyway, um, I think that dividend growth is probably going to be more important than my current yields uh, and as far as kind of building me wealth over the long term. Right. And I agree that you do have time and the companies that you mentioned are all for all intents and purposes, household names. I don't think there's one that anyone has to go and look up saying, what did he just mention? I mean, Disney, Starbucks, Visa, MasterCard, they're all synonymous with the American economy. And this is the discussion I really wanted to get in with a younger investor is, you know, and I guess a little bit of my hesitation of buying those lower yielders is that you're relying so much on the growth and, you know, when that growth begins to slow, then what happens? Because, you know, you're expecting, it, I mean, you may be looking at this from a dividend growth perspective, like I can take a 1% yield if they're giving me 15 to 20% raises every year. But with that expectation, the rest of the market is expecting 50 to 20% share price appreciation. And, you know, it's just going to take so long for someone that's a little bit older to say, is it even worth buying this for the income stream? Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think your investment horizon definitely plays a role because, you know, like you said, even you, know, you use the, that what is it, the rule 73? Uh, uh, 72 specifically. Okay, yeah. Yes. I mean, you know, you think about that and if it's yielding, you know, Visa, some of these companies are going their dividends at 20% a year and they have for a while. Now, so you know you're talking you're talking about a an income double off of that investment. You know, every three to four years, obviously that growth can't just happen into you know forever. But the good thing is, with these investments, you do typically get the uh, share price gains because of their earnings growth. And another thing I pay attention to with the low yielders, and this is the case for for I think all of my low yielders, is that. Their yields are low, but their payout ratios are also extremely low. So, you know, I kind of expect these companies when they mature, when the growth slows to, you know, start paying out 50 to 60% of their earnings as dividends instead of, you know, 20 to 30%. And obviously there's some speculation going on there on my part, but, um, you know, I, 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 that seems to be sort of the trajectory of a maturing company. They start to, stop focusing on R&D and on, on growth and, and acquisitions so much and, and start rewarding their shareholders with their just sort of defensible, reliable cash flows. Well, yeah. And to just go back to the two credit card processing companies, they don't even have debt. So, I mean, they're just cash flow machines. I mean, they don't, it, it's, it's incredible in terms of what they've built and from their global presence, I think they only still have 15% of all transactions globally. So, I mean, there's still a huge runway for them, for both companies to, uh, yeah, I would definitely, I mean, cause earlier you mentioned they're, you know, they're synonymous with the American economy and, and, you know, um, Whole Foods doesn't really have much of an international presence, but you know, all the other ones I, and I don't think Kroger does either. Actually, I kind of like owning the, the American grocers is sort of just a play on, our economy, but you know, Visa, Mastercard, Disney, Apple, all these other companies. You know, they're American companies, but you know, it's such a global world these days. Um, much of their revenues are coming offshore, and 
So, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of much larger plays in my mind than that, but it's specifically with the payment processors, you're right. And I think, you know, I just, I, I just feel like electronic payments is only going to increase. Um, you know, it's hard for me to imagine something that's going to sort of outdo that as far as efficiency and quickness and security goes. Um, you know, we're not writing checks anymore, so, and I don't think that's ever going to happen again. So, yeah, I feel oh, very comfortable. I, I still write them. <laughs> well, I guess some people write them. I write them every now and then, but I swipe the card about a hundred times more often than I write a check, I think. Yeah, no, I'll still be a, a Luddite and uh, still write a check every once in a while. So, Well, see, I, I tried to do that recently, and the, the cashier didn't even know what to do with it. So. <laughs> I want to thank Nicholas for being part of the show this week, and he'll also be on for a part two next week, which will be our last episode. Before then, please join the conversation by finding our show notes, which are going to be published by Dr. Dividend on SeekingAlpha.com on Thursday. And until our last week, happy investing. The conversations on this podcast are intended as entertainment and not intended to represent individual investment advice. The majority of contributors on this podcast are not licensed financial advisors, so please do your own research and do not buy or sell stocks based primarily on what you've heard today.